This week, I don't have any handouts for you, not because I didn't make them, but because the Harvest printer is out of order. So, uh, yeah, so I will, uh, I'll, I'll post them. Um, they'll be posted on the website Monday or Tuesday, and then next week I'll print them out and, um, and bring them so you can have a physical copy. But, yeah, I know I came to, I stayed after church to print some stuff, and Alyssa was telling me it wasn't working. So, but anyway, we'll make do. Um, I'll open us with a word of prayer, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your amazing word, which never ceases to, to, to teach us and to amaze us and to convict us and encourage us. Your word is just what we need in your wisdom and in your, in, in your guidance. You have given us exactly what we need so that we might know you, we might know uh, who we are, we might know about the world and about uh, things that, uh, that you uh, thought were important for us to know, Father. And uh, most importantly, of course, is, is the knowledge of yourself, the knowledge of uh, the good news of the gospel, which is revealed in your word. We thank you for this. We praise you for this book, though difficult and um, confusing at times. It is a rich, rich treasure of, of, of encouragement and of uh, motivation to, to persevere and to remain faithful. It is uh, a book of hope, and I pray that we would see that today, especially as we, as we walk through these couple of chapters that, uh, that showcase your, your judgment and the future judgment of, of the wicked and your, your plan to set all things right. Uh, under Christ. We praise you for who you are. It's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, uh, we went through chapters 12 to 14, and we had previously been going through the, the series of judgments. We had first the seals, and then we had the trumpets, and then now we have, um, the, and now we have the bowls. Between that, there's kind of this series of, uh, of different visions that John had. This is actually something that I discovered as I was preparing for this week. There's actually, uh, if you track all the times where, where John says, and then I saw, and or I saw next, uh, within that section, there's seven kind of visions that he has. And so there's really these four cycles of seven. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, then the seven... Uh, kind of miscellaneous visions, um, and then now we get the seven bulls. And uh, there's a lot of significance there. There was a lot of uh, important, uh, important truths that we saw. There was uh, really this, this narrative that, that we saw as, uh, as we, we hear about the, the war of the dragon and of the lamb, and there's this, this cosmic conflict going on that really began in Genesis 3, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, um, and it's this battle raging between uh, between Christ and uh, Satan, the dragon. And, and in chapter twelve, we see uh, see Christ's defeat. The, the dragon is thrown down. Uh, we see how the dragon seeks to persecute the people of God. And then in chapter fourteen, we 
get some further visions of the proclamation of the gospel, um, judgment, the, the final um, harvest of the, the righteous and the wicked, and then at the very beginning of chapter 15 that we see today, this is essentially the seventh vision that, that caps off um, that series, and it also takes us right into the bulls. There's this interlockingness almost where we have, um, we have the end of one, one cycle and then the beginning of another cycle as the bulls begin. And so um, I thought before we get into the bulls, I would just remind us, since we took kind of a, a week off, um, the, the relationship between the seals and the trumpets and the bulls. And so what I've argued so far is that this isn't a, a chronological sequence. This isn't, um, first we have seal one, then seal two, then seal three, then seal four, all the way down through the bulls, and that's at the end of history. They're all going to unfold that way. Um, instead, what I've been uh, trying to prove from the book is that we have these seven, uh, these seven judgments, this, and then the three cycles of those seven judgments, and that instead of being a, a linear chronological sequence, they're instead really all showcasing the same, the same truth, the same, uh, the same events, the same things from different perspectives. And so we have this, uh, what are called uh, recapitulation or progressive parallelism where uh, each of them build on one another, they show things from a different angle, and they ultimately are all uh, expressing the same thing though in different ways. And so um, these judgments that we find, especially in one through five of each set, are going to be things that occur throughout church history. They're things that have begun to happen and things that continue to happen. And then um, seal six and seven, and then trumpet seven and bowl seven are really the, the final day of the Lord, the, uh, the future return of Christ, the great day of the Lord, as it says in uh, our chapter today, um, when Jesus returns. And it shows it from a different angle. Um, I use the analogy of, of if you're watching a, a football game on television and you have uh, the same game that you're watching and yet throughout broadcast, you'll get a bunch of different angles, a bunch of different views from the sidelines, from above the field, from in the press box, all these sorts of things. Same game, a bunch of different perspectives, a bunch of different views. And so what, I was, uh, what I've been trying to show is that we have... These, these judgments and their different angles, different perspectives, um, showing the same, same events, the same truth. And we'll see that today, especially as we note the, um, as we note the, the parallels between the trumpets and the bulls, and even in terms of their order and everything, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of crossover there. Um, looked up seven bulls on Google, and I found a, a real-life picture of uh, of the event, if you were there, this is what you would have saw. Uh, and so we have in this section the bulls poured out, uh, the seven angels pouring out the bulls. Uh, this is a chart I wanted to pass out to you, and I'll pass it out to you next week. Um, and hopefully you can read it. I know I had to make it a little small to get everything up there. Um, what, what I did here is show these four cycles of seven, uh, the, the seals, the trumpets, then those miscellaneous visions in 12 to, 14, uh, 12 to 15, 4, 
and then the bowls and lay them out and show, uh, show you what happens in each, each one. Um, so then you can, it's also easy to see the parallels as well. Um, and if we look especially at uh, the, the trumpets and the bowls, you can see just how much, um, just how much crossover there is. For instance, with number one, um, we have, uh, we have a judgment poured out on the earth. Uh, in number two, we have uh, the sea turning to, to blood. In number three, we have, um, again, the, uh, an effect on the water, on the rivers and springs. The, um, the target, the recipient of the judgment is the same. It's the earth, then the sea, then the springs and rivers. And then uh, in the fourth one, it's the sun. And so there's that consistency there, even in the order. Um, and we also have some similarities in the other ones. And, and that, I think, is, is really helpful in showing that these aren't different. Uh, these aren't different things that are going to happen in a chronological order. It's uh, the retelling of uh, one reality from different angles. And so you can see some of the other parallels and uh, we'll talk about, I, I put a section there with the interlude and we'll, we'll talk about that today. Essentially what we've seen is that in, um, in the first two, the seals and trumpets, between the sixth, uh, the sixth judgment and the seventh, there's a break, there's an interlude, usually like a, a whole chapter or two. And um, it's interesting because the seventh, the seventh judgment is going to be the final day of the Lord. And so there's this anticipation, this break, this waiting, this longing for the consummation, for the final judgment. And then uh, there's an interlude, and then it happens. And now we get to the, the final series of judgments, the bowls, and there isn't an interlude. It just goes straight into it. Um, hopefully... If you look at this online or if you want uh, when I hand it out next week it'll be helpful for just putting some of the pieces together seeing some of the, the parallels there um, but it's very interesting how the center of the book is is structured around this uh, series of seven and four of them um, and again lots of parallels lots of similarities and yes there are some things that are different because it's showing it from a different angle but I think those similarities and those parallels outweigh that, and they do prove that um, these are the same same thing. So, any questions there before we? Uh, any questions or comments before we hop into the the text? All right, and let's just get into it. Uh, in chapter fifteen. I mentioned those first four verses. We have. It's really, I should have included those first four verses with last week, um, but it's the seventh one of those visions that John receives. And uh, again, there's that interlocking, this crossover between those seven visions and now the seven bowls. And so in verse one, we're introduced to the seven angels with seven plagues, um, which are the seven bowls. And then there'll be a little break and then it returns to that. Uh, and it says, that these plagues, uh, the, the seven plagues or the seven bowls are the last for with them the wrath of God is finished. Uh, I don't think that this is a chronological 
finish and not, okay, yeah, here, now we get to the bowls after this entire sequence of judgments and it's finished, but um, it shows the, the completeness of God's judgment. John has finished in his vision um, seeing the different angles, so to speak, of this judgment. And uh, this is in the sequence of the visions. He recounts it is the, the final one um, that he receives. Really, the, the, the bulls, they round out the entire, uh, the entire vision of judgment in the book, the, in these series of seven. It, um, in some ways, universalizes it. It, it shows it to a greater extent, uh, to a fuller uh, extent, and it rounds out the picture that we've received so far in the seven seals and the seven trumpets. And uh, with them again, the wrath of God is finished, and we'll see um, later at the seventh, the seventh bowl, um, this proclamation, it is finished, it is done, which we'll talk about more then. Uh, in verse 2, he sees what appears to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and on it are those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Um, they're standing beside the sea of glass, uh, worshiping God. Um, in, in the Bible, the sea is usually, and especially in Revelation, the sea is usually not a good place. It's usually, um, usually connected with, uh, with danger, with evil, with, um, with wickedness. Um, the, the beasts which John has just saw came out of this, one of them came out of the sea, just as Daniel saw the beasts that came out of the sea um, in Job and in Isaiah, um, the, the great sea monster, the Leviathan, it's associated with the sea. And so the sea um, isn't a great place. And yet here we have this sea of glass mingled with fire, and it's um, before God, and those who have conquered are near it. They have conquered, uh, they have conquered the beast, it says, and they have conquered, in that sense, the beast that came out of the sea, they've conquered what the sea stands for. Um, and obviously God is the one who, who is sovereign, who is uh, in control and who rules over these things, and he has, uh, he has conquered and proclaimed victory over these things, and now those who follow the Lamb, those who follow Jesus, conquer as well. Um, it's interesting to, to note back in our section from last week in 13.7, the beast was given authority, it was, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. That word conquer we've seen throughout the book. And then here, the ones who stand next to the sea, um, or beside, really, the, the, the word beside, it could also be translated upon. Those who stand upon the sea with harps of God, they are the ones who have conquered the beast. And so there's this irony where, the, and it's the same exact word, uh, the beast was allowed to conquer the followers of, of Christ and actually they conquered the beast. Just as we see that with, um, with Jesus, it seems that Satan and sin and the world has conquered Jesus and then now Jesus conquered death. He conquered sin. Um, and so the followers of the Lamb identify in that same way with him. And the Sea of Glass, the sea brings to mind maybe the, the Red Sea. And I think that's in, in view here, especially with verse, verse, verse 3. Sorry. 
the followers of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Um, a few weeks ago, I, I spent some time talking about the, the motif of the, the new Exodus in Revelation. I, I tried to show the connections between the book of Exodus and Revelation, um, and especially with the, the trumpets and the bulls. The bulls still have those ties to the, the plagues of Exodus, but um, there's this larger theme of, of the uh, death of Christ and of um, his conquering death and then his resurrection ushering in the new exodus, the ultimate exodus. And we see that here because those who conquer the, the beast, who follow Christ and who sing the song of Moses, that were called the song of Moses back in Exodus 15, which the Israelites sang right after they crossed the Red Sea. Um, there's this beautiful song in Exodus 15 that they sang, and it's called the song of Moses. And so they sing that here, but not only is it the song of Moses, it's the song of the Lamb. And so it's kind of like the song of Moses plus. It's this, uh, the greater song of Moses, the ultimate song of Moses, because it's also the song of the Lamb uh, and, his, and it's celebrating uh, the, the true exodus, the true deliverance from sin, from death, from evil. And so this song that is, is being sung is, uh, is, it's really this entire uh, introduction here. It's alluding to other places in the Old Testament, especially Exodus. And then in verses three and four, um, it picks up on places in the Psalms and in the prophets where the Exodus motif is further advanced and described. And so it picks up on that. It's intentionally built off of that to show how uh, this conquering through Christ is the, the new exodus. It is the, the great exodus. And I love the words of this song. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, allusions and just phrases that are taken from, like I said, the Psalms and other places. And uh, it's this, this beautiful song. Again, it's the, the song of the new Exodus, the song of those who have conquered through the blood of Jesus. Does that all make sense? Is that... Did anyone notice that the song of Moses and then make any of those connections after I had talked about the Exodus? It's, um, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating how this theme of the new Exodus is, is developed and it's important to, to the book. Uh, okay, and then we get, now we get into the seven bulls. And so this is where we've, we've now transitioned from the, the seven visions to the seven bulls and uh, he looks and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. This has been mentioned before and it's, it's the sanctuary of the tent of witness. It's the presence of God, um, God's, uh, God's nearness and his, uh, his being um, present with his people is, is what it originally is in, in Exodus and in Revelation. When we see the, the tent of witness, the sanctuary, it is about God's presence and um, and here it is God's presence in judgment. He is um, now judging uh, and doing so righteously. And so the, the seven angels come out 
They are given these bowls of wrath of the God who lives forever and ever. And verse 8, the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. No one could enter the sanctuary. Does that remind anyone of anything? Yeah? And was there another time when it uses this language of something being filled with smoke and glory and no one can enter? Um, at Sinai and the tabernacle, right? After they build the tabernacle, there's you read through. This is probably because you guys all skip it because it's just the tabernacle <laughs> building instructions. Uh, in Exodus, uh, the latter half of Exodus, it, God gives Moses the instructions for building the tabernacle, and you read through all of them, and then it recites them again and saying that Moses did it, um, and it builds up, and they build the tabernacle, and then in Exodus 40, the the glory of God enters in, and no one can enter. Moses can't enter. We see a similar thing with, with the temple. And so God's, God's glory and his power is so, is so um, awful, as in uh, it, is, it is full, it is just awe-inspiring, and it is so awesome in the truest sense of the word um, that, that no one can enter, not even angels or heavenly beings. No one can enter uh, the presence of God while this judgment is, is going on. And so this is, uh, this is really just the introduction to the bowls. The bowls haven't even been poured out yet. And then we get into chapter 16, and this is when the bowls are poured out. So chapter 16, as, as we begin, uh, I noted this um, as I was going through the chart, um, but it's, it, it's significant that the, the bowls, are, the, their order is similar to the trumpets. And so... Um, Again, targeting the earth, then the sea, then the rivers and springs, and then, um, and then the skies, the air. Uh, it, it's in the same order, showing it from a different angle. The thing about the, the bowls is they, they seem to, as they're kind of, there is this progression in some ways of uh, escalating judgment as it shows, um, as we, we see um, the fullness of God's wrath and the final consummation of that. And so there's this progression, but really, uh, especially the bulls and the trumpets, it's two sides of the same coin. And here we just get um, another side that explains the extent and application of God's judgment um, in, in another way, really in a, in a more um, clear and full way than did the trumpets. Matt, can I ask a question? Yeah. Is the, do you think like the whole lead into this, the bulls now, um, <clears throat> being poured out this picture of, I mean, I'm just thinking about this picture of holiness that it's establishing mm -hmm. about God and the song of Moses. It's almost like the, like it's the precursor to the judgment, like highlighting this holiness. Is that kind of what it's doing there or? Yeah, I think so. And it, and we saw that also with, um, with the end of the seals and then the entrance into the trumpets, there was actually that same image of the, the temple of God and the tabernacle um, being opened. Um, and it's they're, they're interesting, again, there's that interlocking, as we saw, that there wasn't a smooth um, shift from the, the seals to the bowls. There was that interlocking. We had the presence of God and the judgment being poured out. And we see that again here. Is this, there's this interlocking and this introduction. 
Um, and yeah, it prepares us as we, we hear the holiness of God uh, and his, his righteousness prepares us for what is to come, especially in the Song of Moses, um, yeah. the, the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. Just and true are your ways. Uh, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? You alone are holy. And it prepares us for these intense judgments that we, we are about to see. Yeah. Uh, and so we get into the, the angels as they pour out their bowls. Uh, the first one, it's upon uh, the people who uh, bear the mark of the beast. We talked about that um, last week. And it's not necessarily a, lit- necessarily a literal mark on your forehead of 666. Um, and here we, we see that the, the target, again, is the earth and the extent, the limit, is those who, uh, who have the mark of the beast and who worship its Im- image. The, each of the judgment series, the, um, the extent was limited in some way. In the first series, it, was, it affected a third of things. The second series, it affected a fourth of things. Um, or, sorry, the other way around. Um, and then here, it's affecting those who have the mark of the beast. And so, again, it's from different angles showing you how it's uh, affecting uh, the earth. And so they are, are struck with sores, again, connection to the plagues of Exodus. Um, the pouring out of bowls, this isn't like, again, when we think about the, the imagery and the symbolism here, it's, uh, it's not like some angels are, are going to have these bowls and just kind of dump them on the earth. It's uh, figurative for God's judgment being exercised with the sores and, and the pain, painful, harmful um, boils uh, again, just due to the nature of the book it's 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 probably not that these are you know literal boils that are going to be affecting anyone who's an unbeliever but uh, it, it stands for their their agony and for uh, the torment and we've seen that theme that they will there will be torment and that could be physical or spiritual uh, in in different cases. The second angel uh, pours it into the sea. It's the uh, plague in, uh, in Egypt when Moses turned the Nile to, to blood. Same thing here. The sea turns to blood. In the third bowl, uh, the springs and rivers turn to blood. All living things die that are in, dis- in the sea. And uh, this, thing, this, this seems to be targeting, um, as this is, these judgments are targeted on the beast and its followers. We talked about the beast having authority over over nations and over uh, wicked rulers, and as we especially get into the next chapter with uh, with Babylon standing not for the literal city of Babylon, but for really the ungodly world system, and um, whether that's economics or, or commerce or politics or media, whatever. Uh, here, this seems to be with with the sea and and uh, the the rivers and springs affecting the means of. Um, of economy, as we see the, the merchants in, in chapter 18 are judged, they're related to Babylon, and also in chapter 17, uh, we see that the, the rivers uh, are associated with the evil, of the wicked of the earth, and so there's these connections here, again, as we, we see things through the imagery that John is using. Um, and it's interesting then we have the, the bit of an interruption here in the third angel. 
Um, and I have mentioned several times throughout this study that whenever you, you get like a, a song or a poem, it's usually really significant. Um, and again, this one, just like the Song of Moses, it, it prepares us for these judgments and it helps us see things rightly. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the bloods of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And so again, there's this focus on uh, God as the Holy One, God as the one who exercises justice. His judgments are just. They are true. Uh, they, are, they are not um, undeserved. As we see in verse 6, the, the ones receiving judgment, they deserve it. And so this is not unjust. God's judgment is, is right. Uh, and again, and I, and I want to spend some time on this towards the end of tonight, that there, we, this helps us to see things rightly and to see these judgments rightly, that these are, these are right. These are, are, are actually... Uh, just. God isn't overreacting here. Uh, again, the blood to drink, it's not probably not a literal blood that they are, are receiving um, to, to drink, and we see that in, uh, with the, the cup of wine, too, that same idea, the cup of blood. Um, and this stands for death and for suffering, just as they shed the blood of uh, the saints, they will in turn face death and suffering because they deserve it. Any questions so far on the first first three or anything that, that really stood out to you? Well, that second one was <clears throat> every living thing died that was in the sea. Huh. Seems like, I mean, that's like, that's the end. I mean, not literally the end. That's right at the end. This is not something that can happen multiple times. <laughs> Yeah, so, I, so do we read that as every living thing died in the sea, or do we just think of it more of like an extension of um, like the plagues of Egypt and says saying it's localized, it's universal? Yeah, I think um, as I mentioned, there has been this this progression um, in okay. in the judgments, and I think that because of these parallels with the especially with the uh, the trumpets. I don't think we can see it as the, the end uh, because the only time we get to the end is in the sixth, uh, the sixth of each series, series and then the seventh, which is the, the final day of the Lord. Um, saying that everything, everything, every living thing died, I, I do see how that seems like, well, it, this, this would have to be at the end. And um, I do think that it shows that God's judgment, um, again, it can be uni universal throughout, as, as I've showed, I've tried to show that these are things that occur throughout uh, the church age until the coming of Christ. And so we saw in the seals that um, there's judgments that affect a third of the earth, and then there's also judgments that affect the whole of the earth. And so, um, so I, I would tend to see it that way, that this is... It's also a universal, universal extent. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, you believe that we're still believers are still on Earth at this time, mm -hmm. and so the wrath of God is affecting the believers. In addition, it's got to affect the believers if all the sea creatures are um, 
died. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of these things um, happen. They're bad. They can't just happen to um, non-believers because it affects believers too. Mm -hmm. yep. But in Pharaoh, if you're um, drawing parallels between Exodus and stuff, um, the plagues that, that, that God sent to Pharaohs and the Egyptians were not, uh, did not affect the Israelites. You know, like they're, yeah. because of their belief, they had blood mm -hmm. painted on the, um, the doorposts, and we have the blood of Christ protecting mm -hmm. us. So either we're not going to experience this, even when we're, when we're here, or we're taken out before, because... Uh, I wouldn't... Yeah, I wouldn't say, that I wouldn't draw that either distinction. I think that's a really good question. You've picked up on something really important. Um, and what we've seen that John does in the book is he draws on the plagues, which we believe were actual, physical, literal things that happened. Uh, and he takes them, and he's writing apocalyptic literature, and he spiritualizes them, and he uses them symbolically. And so... Um, the plagues, the, the imagery of the plagues is the same, mm -hmm. but the way that it happens, it's not, gonna, it's not just going to be a repeat of these events. And I've tried to show that, that some of these, these things are they're, uh, they're symbolic and it's, it's imagery. And so then uh, the same thing goes with, for how that affects and doesn't affect believers. Um, totally right to pick up on in the, the Exodus account. We have, for instance, uh, the plague of darkness. The Egyptians are all in darkness, but there's light in Goshen, where uh, the, the Israelites are. Um, there's the hail that strikes the, the cattle, and all the Egyptians' cattle is, uh, is killed. All the Israelites' cattle is fine. Um, and so again, there's this physical, there's this physical reality in the, the Exodus account. And John now takes these things and makes them spiritual. And so... Our protection, our, uh, our God's protection of believers from these judgments, uh, it's not so much a physical thing, but a spiritual thing. And that's what we've seen with uh, the sealing in chapter 7 and in chapter 14, those who are sealed by God. It's, it's not a promise of physical protection, and that's clear throughout the book because you have people being martyred, people being persecuted. And that's one of the things that is so clear throughout the book is that, that uh, Christians will face suffering. And that's clear throughout the New Testament. Christians will face suffering. They will face persecution, even death. Um, and it's those who are faithful unto death, who follow Christ, um, who are, are uh, counted among the conquerors. And it's because they have been sealed and protected by God spiritually. Um, I do think that, again, some of these judgments are physical, but there's also a, a true spiritual nature to these judgments as well um, with the, the sores and with, um, with, with the, the scorching. It's not, uh, you know, the, the sun is not just going to laser people, but there's this, uh, this, this torment and this physical, um, or this spiritual discomfort and torment and agony. Uh, same with the darkness, which is separation from God. And so believers are, are, are protected from the, the spiritual 
nature of the judgments. And there are probably realities, and, and we saw this with the seals, where um, there are things that are affecting the earth, and, and it actually does affect the people of God. Because in the fifth seal, uh, you have people who were killed as a result of uh, evil running rampant in the seal judgments. You have martyrs who are killed and who are crying out to God, how long avenge us? Um, and, and God says, wait until the full number um, of people, uh, of, of martyrs has, has, um, has come. And so, uh, so, so totally, totally good to pick up on that. Again, the distinction is, is one of genre of how we, we're, there's narrative, uh, historical narrative, and then this apocalyptic genre. And so John's taking these things and using the images and doing so in a way that it's, it's spiritual. It's, um, and again, the protection is, is, not, uh, is not necessarily physical. It is well, that, primarily that spiritual. That diminishes my hope because... Um, but your hope should be spiritual, not physical. It's both. <laughs> Believe me, I've seen a lot of suffering in my job. Yes, you do. And why would we pray for, for um, healing and miracles and stuff if all I have to look forward to is, um, yeah, my, my spiritual salvation is sealed at the time that I accepted Christ and the Holy Spirit entered me. But being human that I am, I have hope that I will be in heaven forever and eternal, I know that. But I am so not looking forward to this mm -hmm. tribulation. Mm -hmm. if, this, if we're gonna have to experience what this is, I just can't get over the fact that um, that we're gonna that that we are the bride of Christ and we're going to be experiencing God's wrath here on earth when if, if that's His um, plan of courtship for His bride, I don't want I don't really want physically anything to do with that, and I am it, it creates more terror than relief in me. Well, it does say I forget which book it is, but it's in the New Testament that we're like sheep to be slaughtered for for the church age that the Christians are pretty much a sheep to be slaughtered like they were in Nero's time. They are now in a lot of places in the world. So. Well in a lot of places I acknowledge that but I don't want well, to we're not supposed to want to have to that's for sure Jennifer though he slain me yet will I love him. Yeah. That came to mind. Yeah. But no, I kind of, I see where you're going. And one thing, I'm sorry, I missed last week, so maybe you have to I see how these things are running in parallel, like we've been talking mm -hmm. about the bulls and um, the trumpets. Um, but have you guys talked about how the verse in Thessalonians that talks about the twinkling of an eye, the rapture will be, how does this overlay what we're reading? Because part, when I've read Revelation many times in the past, not with this level of understanding we're going into now. But I've always considered the believers in there to be the ones that came after. The people I'm praying for in my family, the people that go, oh, she was right, she's gone. Yes. Um, and then they're there kind of as a consequence of their lack of faith. But that's the way I was always thinking, mm -hmm. is that these ones that were beheaded, the ones that are wearing the white robes, are mm -hmm. the ones that remained. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Really good. Uh, I was been purposely waiting to bring up the uh, Thessalonians passage till we get to 
um, 19 and 20. Um, I, w I will say a couple of things. I, I think that there, so, and I, I might have touched on this uh, a little bit earlier in our study. Um, I talked, I'll, I'll talk about this for sure once we get to 19 and especially 20. Um, there's several different views on the, the millennium that is mentioned in Revelation 20 and uh, the, uh, the tribulation um, and are these things happening after the return of Christ, before the return of Christ? Um, is there, if there is a rapture, is that happening before the tribulation, um, which is what you guys are, are suggesting, is it happening after, is it happening in the middle? Um, and so there's some, some different ways we can, can look at it. Um, the, the problem with, I think, that the, the, the you face if you take this view that, um, yes, Christians are, are just gone, and, and then there's this period where people can still become a Christian. Um, when Jesus comes, there, isn't a, there is no second chance. That's it. And so there's this, this point where Jesus comes and, uh, and, and if he comes to, to take his, I, I just don't think that we can get from the scripture that there's this separate occurrence of him coming to take his people and giving some time for everyone else to kind of figure out and then coming in judgment. And then you also face some, some other challenges like in Revelation 19, if it's being read um, chronologically, uh, straight sequentially, um, you have the, the, what I think is clearly the final battle um, and, and the final judgment and the destruction of all unbelievers and then their subsequent judgment um, before the throne of God. And then if you get into chapter 20 in the millennium, you, you now have unbelievers again. And so either it, it, you run into problems of, well, that either wasn't, wasn't literal and everyone being uh, uh, judged, or um, you have to come up with crazy, like, oh, well, there were babies who weren't judged, and then they grew up, and now they're still alive, or, well, things can't be chronological. And so there's, there's, a lot of different, there's a lot of different pieces in play. Um, ultimately, what I, what I will, will get to and discuss and have mentioned is I, I don't think that there is a pre-tribulation rapture where all current believers taken up, get to avoid everything that is mentioned in this book, and then uh, it's a period of time and then the final judgment. Uh, I think that uh, the, the book has shown and the rest of the New Testament shows we are living in tribulation. We are living in the last days um, right now, and there will be a future return of Christ when the dead are raised who have already died in the Lord and those who uh, who have not died in the Lord yet are already in the Lord, will, uh, will be taken up with Christ and the wicked will be judged. Um, so there's a lot going on there. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it more. Hopefully that can uh, that at least so helps a little for now. Um, so when do you personally, I'm going to pin you down. Yeah. <laughs> do you think that uh, the rapture happens? Uh, because we know it's in there. So, uh, and the twinkling and I will go up and meet him in there. So, um, I'm going to pin you down. And you'll have to answer if you want. Yeah. But I'm curious what your personal opinion is. Uh, uh, I would say that it doesn't happen um, 
before the tribulation, uh, so that it doesn't happen. Yeah, that it, that it doesn't happen before the period that all these judgments are poured out, that we get to take up and avoid all of it. Uh, and so I think that, the, you know, whether we call it the rapture or not, that the taking up is the, the second coming of Christ being taken up with, with Christ. Um, One and the same. Similar to even what we see in, uh, in, in 21 and, uh, and beginning of 19 with the, uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so... Uh, Talk about it. It's a difficult passage. I think that there's uh, that when he comes to reign, pretty much you're saying this. When he comes to reign, when he gets here to reign, we'll be gathered we'll under him. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. But that's not his second coming because he's in the air. He has not put his feet on the Mount of Olives yet and split. There, that's not the second coming. My understanding was that's a rapture. And the people that are believers will meet him in the air, and then while the tribulation is going on for 77 years down below on earth, then we will be experiencing the, uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb in heaven. And then he will come back to earth um, in a white cloud on a white horse with his saints, meaning us, believers behind him to take rule over yeah, that's, and that's my understanding. Yeah, let me turn to First Thessalonians. Gary, do you have anything? Uh, anything to add? <laughs> See, so. uh, like I said, I did did plan to talk about this in more more depth uh, down the road, but let me let me turn to First Thessalonians. I don't allude at least to the fact that the saints are missing, you know, that believers are missing. And I, I don't necessarily see that they're missing. I guess you one know, of the things that... Were, were where does it show in scripture that we've been taken up? I, the thing I was thinking about too, Diana, as you were talking, is my mind just goes to all the ways and places that the New Testament writers tell us that to be united with Christ is also to share in his sufferings yeah. and to know like that is what it is to well, be. we do that in. every day and I understand it, that the tribulation is the wrath of God, you know, and I... And we are not the recipients yeah, of the wrath of God. We're not being targeted well, with God's wrath. Physically, we're not being targeted with it either. Yet, as a result of the judgment, there is a result in which just the evil of the world, we do face persecution and suffering. Why, 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 why we get sick? Why we die now? You know, we're not we're targeted, not but it's part of being human. Well, we... For the, for the we, moment. We talk about, like, the tribulation or whatever, these judgments, these seals as being ongoing events. Yeah. They're not necessarily only future events that have yet to occur. They're types and shadows they along have, the way. Uh, yeah. Well, they are, no, they're not types. They are actual yeah. part of it, right? The seal has been opened. or Since the, Some of these bowls have been poured. You know, are some of these are being poured. It is ongoing now. I think we can get, and you have already acknowledged this, we can get... Um, 
caught up with like what's our life here like in Canvas, Washington. <laughs> but oh my gosh, um, the persecuted church is a real thing. And famine, um, huge, I mean, remember the famines that were happening in Ethiopia? People dying by the thousands. Um, the problems in Rwanda with genocide against, you know, ethnic group against ethnic group. Somalia, yeah, and it's ongoing, it's ongoing, it's ongoing. And so, if you lived in that area, you would say, if you were a Christian living in that area, you would say, I'm experiencing the wrath of God in my, against my culture, against my society. And you might just say, because I've read a lot of these books of the martyrs, and a lot of these guys say, praise God that his, you know, that he's, people's, some, some are responding to the situation and seeking the truth because they're seeing it's not in their religion, in their faith. So they're, they're, they're accepting the wrath of God in their society and in their culture because some through that are being saved. And that is also just God's glory being demonstrated against evil. And so they see all these things and they accept it. They don't enjoy it. It's not like, yes, this is an awesome day or whatever, but only in the sense of it's an awesome day of the Lord. So I think it's, it's, it's happening. It has been happening. And um, we just have to be aware of that. We've been super sheltered in a lot of ways. Although our culture, I mean, our cultures, I think there's more going on than we're ever aware of, you know, evil in our culture. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's happening. Yeah, they say that uh, every year, the whole Christians mark every year than there were during the whole period of Nero. And so, circling back around a little bit to Banna, what you were originally saying, I, th I think that um, there is a lot to, to hope and rejoice in in the spiritual protection. I don't think that um, we are without physical protection, but that might not be God's plan for us. And you know, in my idea of the best plan for my life, sure, I don't want to be imprisoned or, or martyred or persecuted. Um, and yet, I know uh, from a lot of first-hand experience that my plans are not always the best plans and that my plans aren't always God's plans. And so um, if God's, God's plan is good, and, and Romans 8, 28, um, we know that for, for those who are in Christ Jesus, all things work out together for good. Um, you know, we often take that verse and think that, yes, I'm just going to have the good life that I think I, I should have. Right. And yet, God's good is, is, is not, uh, there's not a straight crossover with, with my good and God's good. And so, what is uh, the good that God intends is, is not always uh, what I think should happen. And so, um, if uh, in God's wisdom and sovereignty that, that my life... Uh, some, my life ends in, in martyrdom or persecution or suffering, then that is, it is good. And it is, uh, is something that is, is worthy to, to praise God for. And we see even in Revelation that uh, this, this ironic, this uh, kind of unexpected twist of the lamb, the, the line of Judah, the, the shoot of David, who is the slain lamb, he is the one who has conquered. It's this irony because it's, it's not what they expected. It's not what we expect. We expect a big, powerful, uh, uh, domineering force, and yet it's this slain lamb who laid down his life for his friends, who 
who went down, uh, uh, he came down to earth and, and laid down his life so that uh, those who, who trust in him might have uh, true life. And so what Revelation pushes us towards is modeling the example, uh, following the model and the example of Jesus, the slain lamb. And that means faithfulness. That means uh, perseverance and overcoming uh, is by being faithful to death. And whether that's being faithful to a, uh, a, a, a death on earth through martyrdom or persecution or whatever, or whether that's just continuing to be faithful where God has placed you uh, right now, faithfulness unto death, that is how we we overcome. That is how we, we persevere. And I, I think that there's also a, a lot to say just about, because we could ask, well, if, why would Christians have to go through suffering? And um, Hebrews 12 shows us that God uses suffering, that he even, he, he, he puts us through trials and tribulations and through suffering so that we grow in our faith, in our holiness, in our righteousness. Uh, the, the, the testimony of uh, the, the suffering Christian who is satisfied in God and who loves the Lord more than anything is so powerful to the world. The Christian who is, who is suffering, whether that's through physical persecution or they just lost their, their kids in a tragic accident or whatever suffering it is, uh, the Christian who, uh, who has a, a true deep-seated eternal joy in God, uh, a, a grounding and perseverance in their faith, that witness is so powerful to the world, more so than, uh, than a Christian who is just, everything's going right, nothing. Isn't that everyday life? Because you can't live to be a certain age without having experienced suffering and depending on the Lord to help you through it and walk by your side and stuff. But that's so much different than this final wrath of God, which his, his wrath is held back until... Yeah, and, and his wrath is right now being held back in some ways, and all of these are leading up until the, the final judgment when it is, is without strength, and then in the final judgment we are completely protected. Um, in these judgments that are occurring now and throughout the church age, uh, there isn't a promise of um, complete, easy, no hardships, and and so I think that well, the world does not yet see this, see things as coming from God. Yeah, it, and it's natural disasters. It's you know, uh, man on man versus man. And, yeah, and again, it's it's not that it's not that these are targeted specifically at Christians because they're not, and so the physical nature of um, of the suffering is is not targeted at Christians, but I, th I think also we need to um, I think you've maybe been operating from a, a, a paradigm that is, is seeing these descriptions as, as very literal. And so when we understand the imagery, I think then we see more clearly the spiritual nature. And so yes, there may there, there likely will be a physical reality and aspect of these judgments. But it's primarily a spiritual, I think, judgment upon people. And so um, in that case, the, the, 
visions and judgments aren't as much concerned with um, physical you know, judgment, although that is an aspect. So like in verse 2 when it said, uh, the, the second angel pulled out, poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. So that's a spiritual thing and not a literal thing? I, yeah, I think that uh, based off of uh, the connections with um, the, the Old Testament and the way that um, John uses the, the sea throughout his book, that the sea uh, has a lot of connections to um, the, the ungodly world system, to, um, to the, it has connections here to the beast as well, the beast that came out of the sea that has rule over the sea. And so um, the judgment affects the beast's reign, the beast's influence, um, those that are, are, are under the, uh, the deception of the beast. And so everything being affected, every living thing, I think that, the, again, the, one, we saw one of the ways uh, last week that the, that, um, that the beast works is, is through the deception and um, captivation of, of human rulers and leaders and nations. And so if that is what he's intending here, it's not so much a, there's some physical aspects to it, possibly in, in that, the ways in which they, that these, these literal physical things are having influence are being judged and being restrained, but it's more so this, uh, the, the impact that the sea is having, that the, the beast is using the sea for, is um, being judged and is being, uh, is being impacted. So the Pharaoh, so um, the Pharaoh judgment on the Pharaoh, um, when uh, God turned the, um, the rivers and the dripping water into blood, that was physical, but this isn't? Mm-hmm. And that's because of, uh, because of the genre of Revelation. It's uh, not narrative. It's not a historical narrative telling us of um, these things that actually happened and, and Yes, Revelation is telling us of this vision that John actually saw, but the way in which he's communicating is apocalyptic and symbolic. And so there's uh, a shift that we need to make as readers where we're not reading it and expecting it to be communicating truth in the same exact way um, because of how uh, figurative it is, because of how uh, image-laden it is. It is connected so deeply to the Old Testament. Um, There's a a completely different perspective on the earth, uh, on on what is necessary for restoration. Some of the things that I, I touched on in our very first week, just the perspective of um, this end times uh, literature. And so, so yeah, the, the big thing is that John is, is taking these physical, literal things and is using them in a way that is, is spiritual. Uh, another good example of that is later in this um, in this passage in, uh, let's see, verse 13, there's frogs that, that come out of the, uh, the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. And there's a connection to the frog plague of Egypt, and yet it's clearly not literal frogs spewing out of their mouths. It's, but what did he say, I saw and I saw? So God took him up to heaven and he saw and he keeps saying, 
I saw, I saw, I saw. So he's seeing a literal things. He's not seeing spiritual things. He's seeing literal things that he's telling us about. But we're supposed to interpret it as spiritual? Because the physical thing that he saw never was supposed to stand for that. It was always symbolic. Um, and one of the things we talked about last week was the, the purpose of symbolism and, and that there is a, a reality here where he's seeing things and trying to communicate them and, and it's like how, how do you communicate these things that are, are so complex? He does so really in the best way he can think of, which is through uh, the language of the Old Testament, which is what he knows. Uh, and the other piece too is, is there's this uh, th there's this impact that the visions have that is different than if it was just written as a epistle, as you know one of Paul's letters, just this logical flow of thought. Uh, a, a picture is worth a thousand words. There's this reality in which the, the images and the, um, the symbols, they communicate these things in a way that is, is shocking, that is um, intense, that is, uh, is filled with meaning, that is rich in meaning, and they do so, and, and it's used because some of these things just can't be communicated through um, a, a literal, logical discourse. That article from last week explained a whole lot yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like I'm I'm thinking too. Um, uh, it's like, well, first of all, those pictures like they make you they make you think hard, which we're supposed to be doing in this. Like we're supposed to, it's getting our attention. We have to be thoughtful. It's not just like a grocery list that we just okay this and then this and this. But but I was thinking about the um, the the exodus and the plagues and, and then now John using them it's these it's the same it's like I guess I'm just trying to use different words to think of if this makes sense is how I'm seeing it in my own mind very simplistically but like something very specific happened you know in each of the plagues and now John is seeing a, vig a vision and it's repicturing those things that have spiritual meanings for what God is doing and will do when he's making all things but, new. Um, God, he's transported to look at the future, the end time. So not, he's not looking back. I don't think Bible's, he's just looking at the end time. He's looking at things uh, that, that have been, that are now, and that will be. And so it's, and as I've been trying to show is that the, the last days, it's not just these seven years at the very end of history, the last days, began with the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus. And so we are in the last days and he's seeing a vision of things that are, are happening now and things that will happen, but it's, uh, it's not just confined to only being about the future. The book of Revelation is about now as well. And the scripture like is so good. God is so good in the scriptures to like keep orienting us back to these same stories he's been telling. And then they have these new ways of us seeing the world through them. And so the Exodus story is so much like that. I mean, the writer of Hebrews is going to use it to talk about the wilderness generations about, and about us holding fast. And, and John's using it to say, remember the, the God's judgment on Egypt here, and there's good, he's, he's judging and he will judge, and it looks like this, but it's this kind of thing that he's doing. So, I mean, it's always bringing us back to this. It's always looking back to help us look forward, too.
Yeah. Gary? Yeah. Also, Diane, you talk about being concerned about if we're here as Christians, how we're going to be programmed with the same things. And so uh, it seems very targeted. Whatever the, these judgments are representing, they're very targeted to those who are against God, their enemies, because it says, um, like even the uh, third plague, I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who he is and who was? For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and have given them blood, and you've given them blood to drink is what they deserve. So very targeted for people who are God's enemies and enemies of God's people. And then the fourth, fourth one it says, um, Four things were poured out his bowl of the sun, and it was about to scorch people with fire. And they they were scorched with by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, the power of these plagues. They did not repent um, and give glory. So again, these are these are not people who are God's people. They're 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 being impacted by these plagues and they're, and they're uh, still cursing God and they're not repenting. So so the, so the result of these whatever these things really are going to be, they're, they're, they're very targeted for, for uh, God's enemies. But when all the, the sea creatures and everything in the sea dies, uh -huh. that affects the fruit supply, so it indirectly affects us at the same time. If time. that's what that's talking about, yes, it could, but we don't, we don't know for sure if it's really saying that is what took place or not. But regardless, God's, again, again, in Revelation, you see that what God does in terms of the judgments, it, it makes the people who are his enemies hostile. And you don't see anywhere where it talks about God's people being, um, you know, impacted. It says God's, God, the enemies of God's people are, are, that's what we see here a lot. They're, they're the ones that are the ones that target us. So Revelation has a lot to say about our enemies are, are people of, who are the beast kingdom and, and all that. It doesn't say that God's, God's judgments are, are, you know, what we experience. We, we, we will probably experience some things that are the overflow of that, but, but Revelation really emphasizes very much that it's, it's, it's um, you know, the, the kingdom, kingdom of the beast and, and God's enemies who, who impact us, and God is, is uh, judging the people who are not his people. Really good discussions, important, important stuff. Um, hopefully that is clarifying and helpful in some ways. Jennifer, I will, we, will, we will talk about First Thessalonians, um, not next week, but the week after that. Uh, and I'll come prepared and, and ready to talk about that because it's an important verse. Um, let's keep moving through, through these, these bulls. Uh, the fourth angel, Gary, Gary just read and, uh, about the pouring the bull on the sun. Really, as I was just reading this over and over, um, Maybe it's just because I've been thinking about this story lately, but uh, I couldn't help but think of the book of Jonah and Jonah 4. Um, if you're familiar with the book of Jonah, uh, if we fast forward to chapter 4, the Ninevites repent and God relents of his, the wrath that he's going to do on them. Uh, Jonah doesn't like that. He's really upset about it. He's really ticked off. Uh, and so he goes outside to the east of the city to sit and wait and see what happens. Um, God causes a plant to grow up and provide him shade. And then God causes a worm to come and eat the plant, remove the shade, and the sun uh, beats down and scorches his head. Uh, Jonah isn't happy about it. 
gets really ticked off about it and he wants to die. Um, and so I, I, maybe there's an intentional illusion here, it's, but it's just, it's, it's an example of how saturated all of Revelation is with the language or themes or stories of the Old Testament. Uh, and there's so many other connections between the sun, um, obviously in the, the fierce sun, scorching people, scorching Jonah, um, cursing the name of God. Jonah, in a sense, does this as he, uh, as he mocks almost God in chapter 4. Oh, well, I just knew you were a God who's uh, compassionate and slow to anger, um, which is actually the description of God in Exodus 34 when he reveals his name to, uh, to Moses. Um, the God who had power over these plagues, Jonah over and over and over clearly shows that whether it's uh, the windstorm, the fish, the, uh, the, the worm or the plant, all these things, God has power over them. Um, we don't know if Jonah repents and gives God glory. We know that the Ninevites repented. And so any, anyway, just interesting connections here in tracking the language. Um, and we'll start to see now with these bowls, um, the judgment is poured out. Those who are affected curse the name of God. They did not repent and give him glory. The same at the end of the fifth one. They cursed the name of God. They did not repent and give him glory. Um, and so the, the judgment that is, is poured out, it, it, its, its goal is not to cause repentance. In fact, it hardens the hearts, just as it did with Pharaoh in the Exodus account. It kept hardening Pharaoh. Um, and that article that... Uh, Kevin mentioned from last week, um, talks about that as well, that the, the goal of this, the language and the parables, it's either to, um, to sedate or to shock, and it shocks you out of, um, of compromise or, um, or, 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 or unfaithfulness, or it sedates those who are already hardened. It, it, um, it causes them to continue to, to be hardened. And so we see that here, this judgment, it uh, continues to to cause those who have the mark of the beast or who are, are against God continues to harden them. Uh, as we get into uh, the sixth, the sixth bowl, I mentioned the um, the frogs coming out of the mouth as an example of um, uh, him taking a literal, physical thing and turning it into a spiritual reality. Um, obviously, one of the plagues was the frogs coming. Uh, coming everywhere into Egypt and wreaking havoc. And here he turns the, the frogs, it's, uh, they are representing the, the, the demonic spirits that are, are coming out of uh, the unholy trinity, as we talked about last week, the, um, the, the beast and the dragon and the false prophet. Um, they are demonic spirits that are deceptive. They perform these signs of deception. Um, they, uh, they, they deceive the kings of the world kings of the world are, are symbolic of uh, political authorities, of the, the ungodly world system, um, and it brings them together, it assembles them for uh, the battle on the great day of uh, God Almighty. It's assembling them, and if you're reading the ESV, it has to assemble them for battle on the great day of uh, God Almighty. Um, they, they kind of left out the word the. It's not just a battle, it's the battle. 
there's the article there in, um, in Greek because this is the final battle and this is the battle that we will get to in Revelation 19. It's preparing them for, uh, for battle on the great day of Yahweh, the great day of, of the Lord, uh, which is the final coming, the final day of the Lord. And this is what we see in the seventh, uh, the seventh bowl and trumpet and seal, the final day of the Lord. And so the sixth one kind of preps for it, kind of moves into it. Um, and they're being assembled now to, to stand against the Lord. Um, it's an interesting, if you, if you see in parentheses there uh, in verse 15, there's kind of like this side note. Uh, Jesus just adds, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Um, I don't know, what's that doing there? It seems kind of random. Does anyone... What? Yeah, but what's the, what's the, what's the purpose? Why, why is that, that verse included? It seems kind of like it breaks up the, the, the judgment, especially then it goes on to 16, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Well, it kind of goes back to uh, perseverance, right? Keep mm-hmm. your garments on. About that before, this calls for perseverance. And um, it says, stay awake. So be alert, be in tune. Yeah, and well, um, garments are also right and, exactly. and it's not ourselves that um, are saving us. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the, you know, the righteousness of Christ. Yeah. There's, I think this, is, this insert is important as, as I was thinking about it um, a lot this week. I, I'll, I'm going to write a paper someday on the, the rhetorical value of Revelation 16.15 in the, in, the, in the structure of John's apocalypse. That'll be the, the title. You can, Riveting. Uh, uh, yeah, I, th- I think the idea of prepare... Uh, being prepared is, is what's key here, and, and it's used, this language is not only used in, in uh, John here, um, but throughout the Gospels as well, as of um, being prepared, and the, the thief language, coming like a thief, that's used in Second Peter, First Thessalonians, um, in, uh, in the Gospels as well. So, so being prepared, being ready, um, not taking your, your clothes off, being ready. Um, but I, I think there's, a, there's rhetorical value here in... in what John is trying to convey by including these words here. And so, uh, as Joel mentioned, there's been this call to, to persevere. And in, these, in this last series of visions, we saw two times it said, here's the call uh, for the endurance and faith of the saints. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Um, inserted after this vision of judgment, uh, there's... These, this vision, which is either going to shock or sedate, as I said, it's either going to, to cause, um, cause you to change or it's going to harden you. And uh, that statement, it, after you hear that this judgment is going to happen, it, it says, here's a call for endurance, encouraging you to, to endure. Then there's also, excuse me, at the, um, at the, near the ending of uh, the description of the first and second beast, you have... Uh, the call, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. And that's the call to, to be discerning, to, uh, to, to pay attention, to have the spiritual ears to hear and receive what God is saying and, and to do it um, rather than those who have ears and don't hear. 
And then at the end of chapter 13, as we, we get to the mark of the beast, this calls for, li- uh, for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding uh, calculate or figure out the number of the beast, understand it, and it's this call to be wise and discerning and to hear and to understand. Um, yeah. All of that, is the, those one-line uh, exhortations, they're this call for faithfulness and for perseverance. And so here I think there's a significance in um, it, 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 exhortation to persevere and to be ready and to be prepared. Um, again, the language of coming like a thief is used throughout uh, the New Testament, um, bl- there's a blessing here pronounced as one of the seven uh, blessed statements in Revelation, and uh, it, it is encouraging uh, staying awake, that is, staying prepared, ready for when Christ returns. Uh, and then the seventh, the seventh angel, the seventh bull, the final one, we reach the climax, um, and when he pours out the bull, says, it is done. It's a significant phrase. It's used a few times in scripture, right? Um, very beginning of creation. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the seventh day, God finished his work. In Psalm 22, which is a great uh, messianic prophecy about the crucifixion. Uh, at the very end, uh, it says, and he will say it is finished. And then in John, he records the words of Jesus. And it's significant if I, I, I believe that the same John who wrote the Gospel of John wrote this book. So he records this again. Um, Jesus on the cross, it is finished. It's actually from the same word um, as it is done here. And so it is done. The wrath of God is complete. And then we'll see this same phrase again in 21 when uh, it focuses on the consummation of God's judgment, but also of his redemption and the coming of the new heavens and new earth. It is done. Um, you have the, the phrase that we've seen now three times in the center of this book. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, um, this Sinai imagery from the, the, uh, the theophany on Sinai. And it, this is all talking about the final day of the Lord. Now there's a, there's a few more um, things like the, the islands fleeing away. That was mentioned with the seals. It's about the final day of the Lord. The seventh bowl is clearly the final judgment, the final day of the Lord that we saw in the seventh trumpet and the seventh seal. Um, so a couple other things we could talk about. We'll talk about Babylon the Great next week, and so I'll save some of that. Um, more connections to the plagues of Exodus, more connections to uh, the other series of judgments. Uh, but now we have, we've completed the seven series. Um, is there any, any questions or any, any comments, anything that stuck out from, from this week's reading, this week's passage? I think when we look at the, the big picture, and it's easy to talk about all the details, but when we look at the big picture that we've seen from, from these two chapters, it's clear in the bold judgments that God, uh, God punishes the ungodly during uh, the age of the church, and ultimately, consummately, at the final day of Christ because of their wickedness, because of their persecution and their idolatry. God punishes the ungodly right now and ultimately at the second coming. That's kind of the big, big takeaway. Um, 
And that's what these series of judgments have been conveying, is that God's judgment will happen. And these are even somewhat still responding to the cry of the, the martyrs of the saints under the altar in the fifth seal. Oh Lord, when, how long, when will we be avenged? Um, God's saying, I, I will be patient, I'm going to. Um, and, and we see that this, this judgment will come. This just reminds me so much of the book of Psalms where the psalmists are crying out for God's judgment to come against those who are his enemies and how that's a righteous desire to see the enemies of God put under the feet of the anointed one. And, um, and this, this is what they were crying out for. This is what they were looking to God for, that God would be glorified, that his just judgments would be made right on the earth. Yeah. I want to hear from, from you guys about takeaways and, and what you've thought, especially just over this larger section of these judgments. I wanted to read, though, before, um, it's, a, it's an excerpt from um, the introduction to a sermon of um, a, a pastor who's he's also a scholar. I've quoted him a couple times. His name's Sam Storms. Um, and it's, a, it's an introduction to a sermon. He preached through the book of Revelation, and it's the introduction to his sermon on, uh, on the bulls, uh, or on, on the trumpets, rather. Uh, I, was, I found it convicting, and I found it helpful, so uh, I, I thought I'd go ahead and read it. Why do people struggle with the book of Revelation? By that, I don't mean why do people have differing interpretations of what will happen when Christ returns, or why do people disagree on the identity of the beast and false prophet. The struggle I have in mind is the difficulty people have with the unrelenting display of divine wrath and judgment on the world of unbelievers and idolaters. In other words, the single greatest problem people have with this book isn't its symbolism or its view of history or the meaning of the number 666, the single greatest challenge that people face when reading Revelation is the extent and intensity of the judgments that unbelievers and idolaters endure. Let me put it this way. There's a test that each of us can apply to ourselves to determine whether or not we have a biblical view of God. Hmm. If you want to know what God thinks of his own glory and honor and whether or not you share his perspective, all that is needed is for you to ask yourself this question. When I read of the devastating judgments in the book of Revelation, that is to say, when I read of the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven bowl judgments, do I think that God is overreacting? Do I find myself saying, these judgments are unwarranted, unwarranted, they are extreme. They exceed the boundaries of what is just and right. The seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments are excessive and unjustified. If that is your reaction, then I suggest you need to revisit and reevaluate not only your view of God, but also your view of the horror and wickedness of human sin. What I'm suggesting is simply this. If you cringe when you read about the seal, trumpet, and bull judgments, it can only be due to one thing. You have too high a view of humanity and too low a view of God. Once the human heart has seen, sensed, or come to understand but a fraction of the immeasurable glory and majesty of God, Nothing will make more sense than the intensity of the display of divine wrath that we read about in Revelation. So let me ask the question again in a slightly different way. How serious an act of cosmic treason is it that human beings whom God made to know and glorify him have instead selfishly exploited his gifts and rebelled against him? 
Do you find it inexpressibly deplorable that men and women have dishonored the only honorable being in the universe and have treated with calloused contempt the only beautiful and praiseworthy being in the universe? And do you think that human sin warrants the kind of judgment that we read about in the book of Revelation? If you find yourself increasingly bothered and unsettled by the portrayal of judgment in Revelation, my recommendation is that you spend considerable time reevaluating your view of God. Once you comprehend the immeasurable height of his infinite worth and value, you will understand the immeasurable depth of human sin and idolatry, and the book of Revelation will no longer be an enigma to your mind or an offense to your soul. So with that in mind, he says, let's turn our attention to the first five of the seven trumpet judgments. And then he continues into his sermon. Uh, I thought it was a pretty powerful introduction. Uh, and I was convicted by it. That what, what do you, how, how do you guys respond to that? What do you, what do you think? Interesting, it uh, mirrors a message I heard recently from R.C. Sproul. Mm-hmm. It's almost yeah. identical to that. Yeah. And it really impacted me. I thought, wow, yeah. my perspective of God needs to be expanded. Yeah. Yeah. What were you saying, Julie? Oh, it just makes me want to suffer for him. Yeah. I think probably the biggest understatement in the Bible is when Jesus comes back from the Mount of Transfiguration and has to heal the boy with, uh, from his problems, and and they're questioning him about it. And he says, "How long must I put up with this? How long do I have to put up with these people?" You know, I mean, that's the biggest understatement in the Bible. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, a while back, uh, Pastor Greg was passing out a book for free. I don't know if you guys remember this, but he said, hey, just come up and take this book. It's called The Insanity of God. Mm. And I just felt like I had to go take it. And as Greg handed it to me, he said, I warn you. I warn you, this is going to really be hard to read. Well, it's a book about, first half of the book is about Somalia and about two-thirds of the way through, but the second half of the book has to do with uh, Russia and you know, places like that over there, former Soviet Union. And it's extremely eye-opening for me what Christians go through and how they suffer. And for them, it's just life. <coughs> I'm going to live my life in Christ. I'm going to prison. I live my life in Christ. And all these terrible things that they go through. And it's just um, being here in America and what we see in the, we have a form of lawfulness here that we're just sort of used to. Um, it's really it makes what you just read a whole new context mm-hmm. for why God would judge that heart. Because we have no, until you read that book, it's just sort of the tip of the iceberg. It's just this one man's experience of exploring what Siren for God is about. I recommend it. I'm only two-thirds of the way through, but it is a tough one to read. Yeah, and, the, and I like, the, so he, he recommends that uh, adjusting our view of God and our view of sin. And so there's, we need to see the, the, the beauty and the glory and the height of, of God and also the depth and the, uh, the, uh, the, the dishonor and the infinite uh, offense of our sin. And so seeing when we see how far those things are apart, seeing if we keep increasing that distance, um, we see this, this view of God and we, we understand, yes, God, we, we understand why God needs to, to judge, and and having um, and having a, a, a bigger view of uh, God's glory and of the de- uh, the uh, depravity of, of sin and of, of humans, um, it 
then causes us to be be more thankful and more uh, more more uh, grateful for our own salvation because we recognize uh, what we have been saved from, what we deserve, and we understand how beautiful and and incomprehensible it is that uh, that God Himself would take on the form of uh, a human who He created, uh, humans who He created, and live among them, live like them, die for them, uh, dying to absorb all of the, the wrath that their sin deserves. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. And so um, that's one way in which Revelation also can cause us to praise and thank God is, is seeing his justice and his judgment and um, how glorious he is causes us to, to be more thankful for our own salvation and all the blessings that we have in Christ. So, um, so yeah, hopefully that was, was, was powerful. It was, uh, powerful for me. Um, it's a very good introduction to a sermon. Man, if I was, if I was sitting there on a Sunday, I would, just, whoa, I would be floored. So, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Any, anything else that anyone wants to add? Exactly, and that's the you know the irony of you know we hear people say, oh well, a, a good God wouldn't do that, or you know um, my God wouldn't, and just the 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 audacity to even say, well, you know, in my own finite human thinking, I can say what would be the best thing for God to do and what is right and wrong, and so yeah, yeah Revelation gives us a a big view of God, and uh, a big view of God is. Um, it is bigger and better. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's the most practical thing. It's, and that's why you know theology is important, and studying yes. God's word is important. The the bigger view of God we have, it, it affects all of our lives. It affects how we live. Um, so, yeah. I had a prof who said this week, and it just stuck with me. I'm going to remember this, but he said, "We need not a higher self-esteem, but a higher God-esteem." And I just think that is applicable yeah. across humanity, in Christian culture, in everywhere. We need not a higher self-esteem, but God-esteem. Who said that? Really? Meanwhile, back at the ranch. The people that have the biggest view of God 
still isn't big enough. Yeah. Anything else? I was just thinking, like, uh, the things that we suffer in this life, and the uh, perspectives change from complaining about it to mm -hmm. thanking God for His great mercy in it. That, yeah. Yeah. It's part of our training to not be lulled into the deception that we're going we're to live a wonderful life in this world. Yeah. But to live for the kingdom and be devoted to Him. Yeah. Dependent upon Him. Yeah. That's yeah. good. So, in all these ways, Revelation is a practical book. For us, and, and it's kind of what Satan said to God in Jehovah. Well, why wouldn't He bless you? You bless Him all the time. He's got this big hedge of protection around Him. Everything He does, and He prospers. You know, what good is a testimony like that? Yeah, I mean, really. You know. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, next week we are going to be talking about Revelation 17:1 through 19:10, uh, the tale of two women, the harlot and the bride. So uh, it's a very, very fascinating section, and um, it's rooted in Old Testament allusions, as uh, Revelation is, and um, we get to kind of the, the climax of God's judgment on, um, on the earth and on uh, ungodliness and, and wickedness. So good section. Uh, read it beforehand, and we will talk about it next week. Thank you all. Thanks,